You are listening to the Galena Missions Podcast, the preaching ministry of Galena Bible Church. Follow along as we study God's Word together. Why don't you grab your Bible and join me in 2 Peter. 2 Peter. Between now and uh, Christmas break, we're going to try to walk through the book of 2 Peter. Three chapters long. Um, Kind of obscure. If you read through it, there's not a, there's not going to be a ton of verses that you're super familiar with. As far as there's not a lot of verses that are in Second Peter that are coffee cup theology, right? That fit nicely on look like a nice you know make nice coffee cups and stuff. Um, but it is a profound book, uh, and it's profound for a specific reason. One of the um, uh, mythologies uh, from from Greece around the nature of the Cyclops. You guys remember those? We just finished Halloween. I don't, there probably weren't any Cyclops walking around Galena, but the, you remember the, the old... Uh, uh, when I think of Cyclops, I think of the old 1960s and 70s claymations uh, that they made, like, you know, Voyage of Sinbad, and those where they had the guy, you know, the guy, you know, this little claymation thing chasing him. Uh, but the, the mythology around uh, Cyclops was that Cyclopses were individuals who asked the gods for the ability to see the future in exchange for one of their eyes. In other words, that they would lose one eye with the ability to see the future. And the gods that they asked were tricky, and they did grant their ability by taking one of their eyes to see the future, but they could only see one thing. They could only see the moment of their death. Uh, and so it was a, 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 a trick, a falsery in it. Uh, and it was an interesting thing to think about uh, the nature of life of saying, what would you, how would you live, what would you say, what would you do if you knew for certain the exact moment, place, and time of your death? Uh, would you live in utter fear, trying to uh, avoid, run away from, stay away from uh, that moment, the realizing that it was fixed and unchangeable? Or would you embrace it as a close friend? Well, this is what the book of 2 Peter is. Peter knows his death is imminent. He doesn't know when. He probably doesn't know exactly how. But he knows that it is coming very, very soon. Most scholars believe that Peter wrote this uh, very shortly before he was martyred by Emperor Nero in the mass uh, persecution of the Christians uh, in that area. If you remember much of your uh, Roman history and story, there was a fire that started in Rome proper and it spread like wildfire. And of course the people of Rome were furious uh, because the city burned and the Roman uh, guards did not respond the way that they felt like they needed to. And Nero, who was Caesar at the time, uh, was beginning to feel a ton of pressure that it was his fault. And so he needed a good scapegoat. He needed somebody that he could blame. And who he blamed was this weird sect of Jews, as he called them, known as the Christians. And he said they were the ones that were at fault with this. They were the ones that caused the fire. You should hate them. And so the massive uh, beginning of the massive Roman persecution of Christians began at this time. And Peter and his wife and many others were caught up historically in this event. 
If you've been watching The Chosen with us, it's an interesting uh, uh, video series trying to give the humanity nature of both Jesus and the disciples and the dynamic of it. And oftentimes we forget about uh, the fact that Peter was married uh, and his wife went through life and went through ministry alongside of him in this context uh, and was also martyred with him is what history tells us. And in 2 Peter, he is writing to the church in Asia Minor in general. This is not to one particular church. This is to uh, the church, as it were, to be passed along with with, uh, Peter's intent of uh, trying to say something to the effect of, if I've got one more shot, if I've got one more conversation, if I have one more sermon in me, if I literally have one more letter to write to you to impart some kind of wisdom, some kind of encouragement, some kind of instruction... This is it. So when you read 2 Peter, it holds a little bit more weight than just, well, this is just another sermon, it's another thing. No, this is, these are the dying words of a man that knows he's fixing to give account before God. And as Peter writes, uh, Peter writes this, he's wanting to deal with some things that are beginning to permeate uh, in the church at large, some false teaching, uh, false teachers that have arose in their midst, some issues around the nature of the gospel and what it is uh, that God has said through His Word to people. And oftentimes when we begin reading books of the Bible, we skim through chapter, uh, chapter, the first chapter and then 1 and 2 and 3, uh, those verses, because they're just the introduction, right? Nobody sits and looks at a letter and dwells upon the two field and the four field. You just know who those are and then you move on. But we miss such incredible riches because the, the gospel writer, the, uh, the epistle writers, Peter and uh, Paul and John and these, oftentimes when they give us an intro into their book, they're giving us a picture of what the whole book is going to be. They're introducing their big idea, if you will, from the very beginning. And I would contend that one of the big ideas that Peter has for us in Second Peter is the idea of, prior, of right tension. Uh, when you think of tension in Scripture, you think of something that is being pulled in opposite directions, right? Think a, a bungee cord. A bungee cord only works when it's fixed on two sides and it is being held at proper tension. Otherwise, it is just this floppy thing that doesn't do any good. And the Bible is full of tension, right tension. So we think of things like the Trinity, right? Three gods, I mean, uh, three persons, one God, right? Now, if anybody here thinks that they have that fully understood and fully, you know, has their mind wrapped around that, I'm, I'm just going to call you a heretic at that point. Um, but the Bible very clearly teaches three persons, one God, and to lose the tension of that is to get jettisoned off into some kind of crazy heresy, right? The idea of God's justice and the idea of God's grace are two things that are held in tension. The Bible tells us that God is completely just. He will deal with all sin properly, rightly, with His divine authority. And simultaneously, He will give undeserved grace or favor to people. And if we lose perspective on that, then we get this you know, loosey-goosey, just, you know, it doesn't really matter what you do kind of grace theology, or you get this really judgmental, angry, bitter, uh, harsh, legalistic view of God if you, if you lose it off on the side of justice. 
So tension, as we read it in Scripture, is proper. And you'll see it all over the place, but we could skip over this and and miss seeing the tension. And what I want us to focus on as we take a look today at just the uh, first four verses, I want us to look at the nature of tension and how it applies to us. And see how it is uh, in the, the way in which He describes our relationship with God. Because ultimately, we want what God wants for us. This is Peter telling the churches at large, there is something that I want desperately for you. I want you to have God Himself. The real God. And not to have some caricature or some offshoot that isn't the real God. Take a look with me in 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 1. He says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ, or of the Lord, uh, or of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. This is the word of the Lord. The first tension that I want us to look at is Paul's, or sorry, Peter's, I'm going to do this this entire time, uh, Peter's uh, introduction of himself. Simon Peter a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. The first tension that we see that uh, Peter lays out for us is willful humility and granted honor. Willful humility, granted honor. Even in the way that he describes or he he, uh, gives his name in this denotes his realization of his submission to Jesus Christ. If you remember from the Gospels, uh, Jesus calling Peter, but he wasn't originally known as Peter. What was he originally known as? Simon. Simon, right? Simon. He was the fisherman. He was the forgotten guy. The oldest of the called disciples. Uh, He was the only married one. Uh, Probably, as we think of Peter, he was probably the only one of the disciples that were in their 30s when Jesus called called them. Most of the other disciples were in their 20s and even down into their teens. Uh, So Peter was the one that was obviously the, the, the one that was at the forefront. He's the one that's the reason why Peter sticks his foot in his mouth over and over and over again throughout the gospel stories. It's why he's the one that's the leader. He was the oldest amongst them. He had already started his career as a fisherman 
fishermen. He had been sidestepped by the uh, Jewish uh, rabbis uh, to, uh, you know, to, to not be in, uh, moved up in the Jewish faith as far as his education. He was uh, basically said, yeah, this guy, he's not smart enough. We're going to sidestep him. And Jesus steps in and calls Simon to himself. And in that grand moment where uh, Jesus is looking at these disciples that are there and he says of his disciples, who do people say that I am? Right, And they will say, some say you're Elijah and some uh, say you're one of the other prophets and all these things. And Jesus looks at them and says, but who do you say that I am? And we uh, have historically called this Peter's confession or the great confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, you are Petros, Peter. The stone, the rock, and on this rock I will build my church. And there's been great contention over the years of what exactly was Jesus doing on that? Was Jesus saying, giving him uh, a kind of papal authority that my church will be built on you, Peter. You're going to be the bedrock of this church and we're going to go off of it. Or was the uh, foundation of this, the uh, on this I will build my church, was it on Peter's confession of uh, Jesus as the Messiah. And of course, as uh, the Protestants and evangelicals have landed upon that as the reality, but it is this distinction that from that moment on, Peter went by Peter, not Simon, any longer. And yet, in this, he, he addresses the churches at large by his both name, Simon Peter. In other words, I was this way, I am this way now. And what is it that makes these two names come together? It is the person of Jesus. The one common factor by which I am writing to you uh, that who I am, even who I am as the writer of this letter, is not the point of uh, the, my authority or my strength or my anything else. Uh, who I am as the writer of this letter is somebody who has been united with Christ. And the tension that we see here is by the two descriptions that uh, Peter gives of himself. He says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. And the way that it links these is that both of those uh, adjectives are fixed to Jesus Christ. Both the bondservant, or your translation might just simply say slave or servant, and apostle, both of those you could just say, Simon Peter, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and apostle of Jesus Christ. They are both linked together in the nature of this. And the wording of this is important for us, and it is right for us to keep this intention the same way that Peter kept this intention, is that his first intent is to say that one thing I hold to be true is that I am in willful humility. Willful humility. When we talk about the will or being willful, you are making a decision to do something. You are choosing to act out this way. If you are uh, being willful, it is your responsibility, your action, your submission, uh, your doing. And what it is that he fixes himself to here that is important is the word bond servant. Uh, it is a, uh, a poor translation to say slave because the slave... Uh, in the, the ancient world, had no dictation over their life. 
They had no will of their own. Everything that they did, everything that they ate, everything that they wore, everything about their life was commanded by someone else and they had no will of their own. But see, this was not the place of a bond servant. This was a different category. Now this may have been an individual who had been in the place of a slave. They had been in the place where they had no will of their own. They had no authority on. They did not have any uh, say over their own life. But at some point in time, they had been granted their freedom. Uh, In the the Roman world, this could have been done by things like uh, military service. This could have been done by, you know, many slaves in the uh, the Roman world were slaves under master, but they were allowed to have kind of side hustles, side jobs where they were allowed to earn money, and then they could then buy their freedom, and they were given papers of certification where they could move out of that, and then they were known as a free person, that they could live however they wanted to live. But the bondservant was different. The bondservant was somebody who they themselves made the decision to bond or uh, put themselves in the service of someone else. The bondservant was an individual maybe who had been a slave before or maybe who even wasn't, but they found themselves in a situation where they loved their master. And they wanted to be with their master so much that they went to their master and they made the decision to bond themselves to it. In the Jewish way, or the Jewish custom, not in the Roman way, but in the Jewish custom, uh, this would have been known as you would mark yourself for your master. When you would enter into that bond, you would go to the, your, your master, you would say, I want to become a bond servant of yours. I am submit, willfully submitting myself in this humble state to you for your care and for your uh, purposes. And if your master agreed to that, they would take you to the doorpost of the church and take a nail and drive it through your ear and mark you as their bondservant. You were bonded to them. Now you were still a servant. You were still considered under. And of course in our society and in our world, we just can't think of anything that seems more heinous than being considered under or subject to anybody. So the concept of saying that this is a willful humility, that I am choosing to be in this place, seems so opposite and odd to us. And yet it is the description that Peter gives of himself in relationship to Christ. Willful humility. I choose to be in this position. But simultaneously, he says of himself that I am a bondservant of Jesus Christ and I am and apostle of Jesus Christ. The word apostle here uh, is used many places throughout the New Testament. It doesn't always mean the same thing. The word literally means uh, the called ones. And there was both the uh, function of apostles. There were individuals who served as ones who were called by the church. And in our modern day terms, we would use the term missionary more so than uh, apostle. uh, That were called by the church to bear the message of the church into the world. And they were given great honor in that calling. But specifically for this, Peter is saying... Not that there was this general sense of I'm an apostle, but he was an apostle in the sense that Jesus Himself called Him into His ministry. 
there was this, not necessarily a willful response to it, but Jesus acting upon his life and giving him a granted honor. It was not by Peter's choosing. It was not by Peter's specialness. There was nothing that Peter could boast about to be able to say, well, yeah, I mean, you know, Jesus got a pretty good deal when He called me, kind of thing, right? No, this was, this was him acknowledging the fact that he could not attain to this. He could not earn it. He didn't even deserve it. He was granted honor. And so simultaneously, just as he's given this introduction of who's writing this letter, he says, we have willful humility... I am choosing to be of lowly estate while simultaneously being granted an honor that I do not deserve. Do you see this tension that exists between the two of these? And friends, the power of this, and I think the reason that he intros this as he's writing this to this church is, is I believe this is the same tension that Peter wants all believers to have as they go throughout life. As you think about Christianity, as you think about your own personal walk, and as you think about the way in which the world looks at us, do they see us walking in grand arrogance? We're the ones that got it right. We're the ones that figured it out. We're the ones that are working, walking in the place of honor. Uh, or do they see us being those that are just you know, beat down and lowly and everything else? You see, there's this tension that exists in the Scriptures of what it calls us to, that we are called to be humble. But if you remember uh, from a sermon a couple weeks back, we talked about the fact that humility itself is not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less, right? There's a willful humility, a willful subjecting to God's will. And it is a right understanding that simultaneously the God of the universe knows your name, knows everything about you, and loves you more than all other things uh, in this universe. This tension that exists is right. There is this place that we are called to have as believers, walking, choosing to be subject to Jesus while simultaneously realizing that we did not choose our high estate. That God chose us. That He loved us. That He granted honor to us. And this is the tension that Peter just simply introduces by saying, Peter, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Willful humidity, humility and granted honor. Right tension number one. The second right tension that we need to understand is divine calling and chosen faith. Divine calling and chosen faith. Take a look what he says as the to part of this, right? We just gave the from, this is the to. To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the two is to Christians at large. We uh, suspect most of this was in Asia Minor. These were mostly Gentile believers, non-Jewish individuals. And and, uh, Peter is making a big deal about the reality 
that these individuals have been transformed by the same saving truth that has changed the Jews that were looking for a Savior, that were looking for their Messiah, and God has done an incredible work in their life. But He puts it in a in a juxtaposition, a, a right tension. And many Christians have fumbled over which side of this they land on. Most of the time, uh, this gets lumped into a category called Calvinism or Arminianism. And, the, and both sides will argue, this is why we're right, and this is why it's true, and all these kind of things. And that's great and wonderful. But I want us to see the tension that uh, Peter brings up right here in this passage. As he's writing to it, he says, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. Now when you think of something being received, that means that you did not do it, right? You receive a Christmas gift. Now, I mean, the the reality of being an adult is sometimes you get to buy your own Christmas gifts and you write to me, from me, with love kind of things, right? But the, the general term of the language is when you receive something, it is somebody else that's giving it to you. But there's a, uh, uh, there's a depth of this that's kind of hidden. The word that is used there for receive is the same word that is used every time you read in the New Testament about the casting of lots. Now when we say casting of lots, it's the idea of casting dice, right? You remember when Jesus was dying on the cross and they, they had the one inner garment that was, uh, um, had no seam from top to bottom. It was woven all together. It was a high dollar piece of clothing. And the Roman guards, as they're uh, you know, dividing up His clothes between them, they can't cut that apart because it loses its value. So it says that they cast lots or cast dice to see who was going to win it. We see this uh, also in... Um, Uh, The beginning of Acts when uh, the early apostles are wanting to appoint a replacement for Judas. uh, And it says that they gathered some of these men who had been with Jesus from the beginning. These what we call lesser known disciples or less named disciples who were with Jesus uh, from early on. And they cast dice uh, with the intent of saying, God, show us by this physical means who it is that you want us to uh, appoint to this office. This is the same word that is used here in this. And it was this idea that in the physical nature of casting dice, that a divine God could take something physical and He could make it be exactly what He wanted it to be. But to everybody else, it looks like chance. Right? You throw dice. And the reason you throw dice is there's chance involved. And this divine calling, as He says, to those who have received visibly by chance, but it is divine chance. A divine calling uh, is the, the picture that he is painting here. To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. A plethora of ideas, a plethora of religions, a plethora of religious practices that existed in the world. And yet, to you who have received from God, even if it appears by chance, this reality of who God is and what God is about, there is divine calling. And yet, there is also chosen Faith. He says, those who have received a faith. 
Sometimes when you read the New Testament, the word faith is used as a body of beliefs, right? Of what kind of faith are you? What uh, specific uh, listing out of faith are you? But this is talking about actually the practice of faith, the doing of faith. Uh, For you to say that you have faith means that you are actually doing something with it. You choose to uh, engage. You choose to trust. You choose to walk into this. And so there is this tension that exists as he describes these believers that are there. And it is right that he says this is chance, divine chance, but chance nonetheless, and choice. That this right tension that we are called to as Christians is this reality that we didn't choose what family we were born into. We didn't choose what continent we were born on. We didn't choose what time period we were born into. We didn't choose any of these things. But God, in His divine sovereignty, in His divine calling, what looks like chance was God acting and giving to us something that we did not deserve. While simultaneously, on our end, there is a response to choose what God gives to us. And there is this tension that is there. Who saves you is the question. Does God save you or do you save you? Does God choose you or do you choose God? And the answer that Peter gives here is yes. God absolutely gives this uh, by righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. This incredible work. And so this tension of just this very beginning thing of this book, willful humility, humility granted honor, right tension of our place in the world that we are to choose to be humble, choose to not be uh, haughty about our faith, but realizing that God has given us great honor in Himself and likewise that God has chosen us, but there's also this reality that every single day we as believers wake up and choose to follow Follow Him. And if we lose the tension on those things, you end up with all kind of crazy theology that does not align with what Scripture teaches. So if we hold these two things in tension, what is the outcome of right tension? What is the outcome of uh, right understanding? One of the reasons that we uh, do emphasize biblical theology, wanting to emphasize what is it that the Scriptures say, is we want to get God right. I don't want to describe God in a way that God does not describe God. Right? I don't want to love something that is not God. The illustration that I love about this is if we're meeting for the first time and you ask, are you married? And I say, oh man, I'm married and I love my wife so much. She is so incredible. And they say, well, what is she like? And I'll say, well, she is 6'4". She's a blonde. She's got blue eyes. She loves NASCAR. Uh, and uh, you know her favorite sport in the world is baseball. Right? None of those things are true about Shell. Right? It doesn't matter how passionately I describe those things to you. None of those are real about who she is. 
And if we lose the tension of what Scripture teaches about who the real God is, then we're not actually loving God rightly. We miss out on who He truly is. And this ultimately is the outcome of right tension. Look what he says in verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the what? The knowledge of God. And of Jesus our Lord. Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true what? Knowledge of Him. What is Peter after? He's after nothing less than God Himself. His final words to the church is, I want you to know the real God. And who is He? He is the person of Jesus Christ. He is our Savior. He begins by saying, uh, grace and peace be multiplied to you. Undeserved favor and true rest. May all that is true that God has planned true for you, may it come to be. That's the picture of peace there. Don't we want that? Don't we want grace? The more and more we walk with Jesus, the more and more we realize just how jacked up we are. And the more and more we realize just how jacked up we are, the more and more we realize how incredible God's grace truly is. I recently started reading a, a book uh, by uh, Dale Orland uh, called Gentle and Lowly. And he, he makes the point of saying there's only one time in Scripture where Jesus ever describes the nature of His own heart. And it's when He says, uh, Take My yoke upon you, for uh, My burden is easy and My yoke is light, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. The picture of Jesus is that Jesus most delights to give grace to us when we come to Him. It is the thing, it's the reason why Jesus went to the, the, uh, the hurting. It's why Jesus went to the broken. It's why Jesus went to the outcast. Not because He had some, even, even in the picture of a Savior complex... It's that it's who He was at the heart level. He was most satisfied in who He truly was, gentle and lowly, bringing grace to undeserving people. And when we realize who He is rightly, when we realize our true humility and the honor that God has given us by calling us in Himself, while we realize God's divine calling and we choose to walk in that, we experience God's grace. The reality of God's grace is that grace comes to the needy. And friends, if you're not very needy, you won't experience much grace. In fact, I believe that to the extent that you understand your neediness, that's the extent that you will experience God's graciousness. If you don't think you need God very much, and you go, well, where is God? <laughs> You've just answered your question right there. You don't think you need Him. But friends, if you come this morning in this reality of I desperately need grace... And aside from that, you look at the tumultuous nature of your world and you say, I need peace. 
This is what He prays for you as this right tension exists. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. And where does that come from? In the knowledge of God. Who He is. Jesus Christ. What He's about. What He's accomplished. This knowledge of God is not just knowing about God. It's knowing Him. The Christian life is not about us living a life where we're just trying to gain more information. It's about us daily walking with the Lord. It's about us hearing from Him. It's about us seeking Him. It's about us submitting to Him. It's about us finding Him from His Word and looking into this world and saying, God, show me what You want to do. And being willing to listen. And ultimately, He says, it is His divine power, seeing His divine power has granted to us, there it is, that gift again. His divine power has granted to us what? What's it say? Everything. His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life. I don't know about you, but I've only ever experienced life. That's all I got. And godliness. That's everything outside of that. And he says His divine power grants us everything pertaining to life and godliness through true knowledge of Him. Tension. A right understanding of how it is that God has called us to. What is the gift that God desires to give to us? The gift that God desires to give to us is not just that we would live our best life in a worldly sense of that. God's gift to us is not that we would just you know, flourish and live and die and you know, not suffer. Those things, though they are good, are not the best. No, the thing that He desires to give to us, the gift, is God Himself. If there's one thing that we wish to know, it is who is God really? And who am I in Him? For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Again, he's saying he's giving us God Himself. That's the divine nature. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Peter's going to address the issue of lust. He's going to address the issue of greed. He's going to address the issue of false teaching as it uh, pertains to our future hope. What is it that we are longing for? We're longing for the day not where I just get to go to heaven, though many people are saying that. They, when they think of Christianity, it's just, well, why are you a Christian? Well, I want to go to heaven. I don't want to go to hell. And he says, that's not the point. The point is, do, do you want God? One of the illustrations that I love around the nature of this is to ask the question, if, if you were to go to heaven... And there you were to find all the pleasures of this life that you long for. Good friends and family, 
uh, good food and no more sickness and no more loneliness and no more hurting. If you could have all of those things there in heaven and yet Jesus wasn't there, would you feel satisfied? And I think for a significant portion of professing Christians, they would answer, well, yeah, I mean, I don't want the alternative, so yeah, of course I want that. And my press to you would be to say, no, dear friend, what you are longing for actually is the opposite. Heaven is not heaven without Jesus. A right knowledge of Him is ultimately what we are after. These are the, the, his, prom, his precious and magnificent promises uh, so that we can be the divine or partakers of the divine nature and escape this corruption of this world of all the lusts that this world affords us that we mistake as God Himself when they actually aren't. So this morning I would just ask you this question. Are you holding the things of God, that God has about you, that God has said about you in right tension? Are you walking in willful humility, realizing that you are a sinner in need of a Savior? That's what it looks like for us to be bondservants of Him, realizing that He has paid a debt for us that we could not pay, and so we are willfully submitting ourselves to Him, while simultaneously realizing that He has granted you great honor not just that He left you as a bondservant, but He has adopted you as a son or daughter. And do you also hold in tension the reality that God calls you and your response is to choose to walk in faith? If these two things are true, and only when these two things are true, can we walk in the reality of actually knowing who God truly is? Let's pray. God, thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You that um, You imparted by the Holy Spirit upon Peter to write these words of encouragement. And so, God, we pray that um, as these words speak to our heart today, that God, if there are areas of our life where we are not holding Your truth in right tension, um, that that would change. That, Holy Spirit, You would convict us of those things, set us on the right trajectory, on the right course, in the right place, seeing our place uh, as uh, what is our responsibility and what is it that you have done for us that we could not do for ourselves. And God, we thank you that uh, in you, Jesus, we have everything for life and the life to come. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've been blessed by the hearing of God's word. Feel free to connect with us at www.galenabiblechurchak.com and subscribe to this podcast at iTunes or at galenamissions.podbean.com.